over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We arrive today in our big book study in the book of James, the letter of James, and it's a short book. It's often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. This letter is addressed to an interesting audience. We call it the diaspora or diasporeo. It sounds like dispersed. And so what we know about this, it probably is Jesus' half-brother. There are those who disagree with that. If you, like me, were raised in the Catholic tradition, that is a bridge too far because they would argue Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters. The text is pretty clear in the New Testament that there were other children born. They weren't just brothers like, hey, we're brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ. And so I, I hold to the view, you may disagree, but I hold that this is, in fact, Jesus Christ's half-brother. That would be a fascinating thing to grow up in a household with Jesus as your big brother. He's always perfect, always right, never wrong. It, you know, I had a brother, he was always right, never wrong, straight A's, and I wasn't that way. So it's joyful. The main audience and readers of this letter have been chased out of Jerusalem proper. That's the simplest way to say it. And these are Jewish Christians primarily, and it's very important when you read this particular letter because you have to keep in mind the Jewish audience, not a mixed audience like we often would think about that. Um, it is notoriously difficult to outline this little book. Uh, a survey of commentaries, there's as few as two parts to as many as 25 parts. And part of that is because if you know the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, a friend of mine said that Solomon had the manuscript and he was taking it to the printer and he spilled it. And they just put Proverbs back together and that's why we have what we have. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. But wisdom literature is not uh, didactic in the same way as Paul, we might, might say. And so James is very interesting in that regard, but it also makes us scratch our heads. It's only 108 verses the way we uh, count verses in our Bible. Uh, no other New Testament book, however, contains as many commands. You hear of verb tenses, the imperative is often a command to do something, a hortatory example of, you know, stop is a hortatory command you know, when you see a traffic light. So James has more of those than any other New Testament book. He also is very free with figures of speech, with analogies. He talks about nature. He talks about 20 Old Testament books in these 108 verses. He references, alludes to 20-some Old Testament references, not to mention Abraham, Rahab, Job, Elijah, the Ten Commandments, a whole litany of things. He's very Jewish in the way he teaches and talks and writes to these dispersed believers. Um, G. Campbell Morgan argues there are so many allusions to Jesus' teaching and the Sermon on the Mount. And if you are a Bible nerd, you, you can do these rabbit hole studies. And they've taken the Sermon on the Mount and put it side by side with James. It'll blow your mind. If that's your thing, it'll blow your mind. The parallels that James pulls on the Sermon on the Mount. On and on it goes. We need to talk a moment about Jesus and Luther. This is the reformer Luther, not the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King. Uh, Luther, of course, is part of the early Reformation time. And uh, he had challenges with this book. He challenged the authorship. He did not know uh, if James wrote it. Uh, for a time, he didn't know if it should be part of the canon uh, he pointed out there were only two references to Jesus in chapter 1, 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. Otherwise, the book was absent in his view on being a true gospel-centric letter. Um, Luther would use this phrase uh, that you probably have heard several different ways, a right straw epistle or an epistle of straw. And, of course, we're going from German to English, so there's a little bit of a challenge to, to put that into our language. Um, the first edition of his German Bible, let me take a side sidebar, the word Protestant is a pejorative term. Because when the Reformation began, they weren't trying to break away and start a new thing. They were trying to what? 
reform the existing church, which was the Catholic Church at the time. That was only one church you had. And so the reformers weren't trying to break up and split. They were trying to change the errors they saw in the church. And so when they started writing Bibles, Luther, of course, German, that was anathema from the, the, the Rome's perspective. You don't, uh, the Catholic perspective, you don't put the Bible in a language like that. It's like the Quran, if you think of the way Arabs look at the Quran. You don't translate it. And so this is a big issue. So in this whole discussion, they start making a study Bible. And Luther's got notes at the bottom of his German translation. And that Bible became known as the Protesters Bible. And that's where we get the word Protestant. It's, a, it's like, like Methodists. Methodism was a, was a negative term. Those Methodists, they follow a methodical way of doing the Bible study, and it was, it was sort of a derogatory term. Maybe analogy today would be deplorables. You know, maybe you like that term, maybe you don't like that term. But it became a, a favorable thing for certain people. I like being called a deplorable, if that's how you define it. Well, they liked being called protesters. They liked being called those who followed Luther and the Reformers' writing. In his uh, works, and understand he didn't entitle these works, these people were incredible scholars who wrote endlessly. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. John Hanna, a brilliant historical theologian, he so reveres the reformers and, and the, the theologians of the past. And one day a student asked him, uh, Dr. Hanna, what, what didn't you like about them? Because you always talk about how great they were. And he said, without pausing, they have the sin of verbosity. They just wrote constantly, and they didn't have a short sentence. Well, anyway, in Luther's works, volume 35, he's talking about other books of the Bible and why they're the Bible. And I'll just give you a little scan of that, but then I want to show you where he uses this phrase and why this is important. I'll try to explain it in a minute. He writes in a word, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle, are books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. So he liked, these are his favorite books. And then he writes, therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. But more of this will later follow. Anyway, so what he's saying is that as he's read it and struggled with it, he goes, this, this one is really hard to digest. It's really hard to chew. And that problem has worked its way into evangelical fundamental Bible-believing churches ever since Luther called it a straw epistle. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but some of you come from backgrounds where this, this nomenclature, oh yeah, I've heard about that. Others you could care less, that's fine. Um, but, but James and, and Paul seemingly have a different way of talking about salvation, particularly justification by faith alone, or in, in James' language, that you have to have a living faith that has to have good works. And these are parsing very fine, but they're also very important if we understand what the gospel is and what it means. Um, our friends Wilkinson and Boa take a pretty good stab at it. James develops the theme of the characteristics of true faith. He effectively uses these characteristics as a series of tests to help his reader evaluate the reality of their relationship to Christ. The purpose of this work is not doctrinal or apologetic, but practical. I think that's the moneymaker sentence. James is not a doctrinal book or an apologetic trying to defend something. That's not his, his point. It's a practical book. I interviewed a professor from um, Masters who's written a commentary on James. And we were talking about the, if you looked at expositors that were very detailed in the, in the language and very deep in the language, and you might name some names, and those who are more practical. So a more practical preacher would be the analogy for what, what they're saying about James. Um, he continues, a genuine faith will produce real changes in a person's conduct and character, and the absence of change is a symptom of a dead faith. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. For some of us, that is the biggest issue in James. I don't want that to be your biggest issue when you leave here today. 
because there's so much more in this incredible little letter than just this challenge of clearly understanding what he means by faith and works. We'll touch on it, but let's look at the letter in some different ways. First of all, the first uh, chapter, verses 2 and 4. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its result, or its perfect result, completing result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How many of us have read this verse and gone, I had to be excited about my trials? Am I the only one? When I read this verse, I, I, when, when something's bad, I should be happy about it. I've told the story many times. Forgive me for repeating. Some of you haven't heard it. A friend of mine had a beautiful store in downtown Nacogdoches with these oak doors that were probably 120-year-old doors, and they were, they were jimmied up with a crowbar and destroyed and defaced so they could steal from his store. And I went to see him, and it was all taped up. And I said, yeah, I can't believe what happened. And he goes, oh, I consider it joy. And I went, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I'd be mad if that was me. So when I reconsider all joy, I'm going, wait, 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 wait. This was an epiphany probably 15 years ago when I studied this passage going, how do you look at a trial biblically? Not just put on a happy face, cheer up, buddy. That's not what this is saying at all. First of all, notice he uses this my brethren 15 times in this little letter. It's an endearing address. We must understand trials are not punishment or discipline for sin only. Uh, The challenge with understanding trials in life, because we're an if-then culture, if I do this, then this should happen. If I do something wrong, then I may expect bad consequence. That's hardwired in the Western brain, an if-then culture. So when something bad happens, we think, what did I do wrong? What should I need to do right to fix it? I think that's pretty common. You might even think that process. But when you face a trial, you go, what do I need to do to fix it? So let's first of all define this. This is really more of being put to a test. It's not because we've, we failed or we sinned or we did something wrong or God's disciplining us. It's a test. Now, how many of us had uh, that unfortunate teacher? And if you're a teacher and you've done this, I want you to feel guilt and shame. How many have you had those teachers that tr- give tricky questions on exams? There was only two of you brave enough to raise your hands. I did not like those professors that had tricky questions. They irritated me. Even to this day, as you can tell, I'm a bit perturbed by it. That's not testing my knowledge of a subject. That's tricking me. That's not what the trials are talking about in the New Testament. These aren't tricks. It's to test to see what you know. It's a very interesting phrase. If you're a King James reader, I love the rendering, divers temptations. Diverse temptations, that's how they render these various trials. Something external happens to you and you have to respond. That's a trial. Something happens to you and you have to respond. So James says, consider it joy when something bad happens to you and you have to respond. But hang on, because what he says is brilliant and I think too often missed by most Christians who read these verses. Um, He'll refer to it later in chapter 1, verse 12 about blessed is the person who perseveres under, same word, under trials. So he's not saying this trial happened to you because you're a bad person or you sinned or God's disciplining you. It's happening for some other reason. So I like to call this, these verses, finding joy in trials, not being joyful, but finding joy in trials. Finding joy is not the trial itself, but first of all, verse three, it's the knowing something. And thirdly, it's understanding endurance. So when the trial comes, I need to know something, and then I need to understand what this endurance mechanism he's talking about. The only way we're going to mature is by enduring. The only way we're going to endure is by a trial. Make sense? There's a a person in here I won't call out, Jack Marr, who's uh, training for a decathlon. God bless him. God bless him. If I was his age and had his build and all that stuff, I still wouldn't do it. Uh, I mean, that is a big, big challenge. It's a trial. I have friends that have done uh, pentathlons, triathlons, never known a person who's done a decathlon and survived. So you can pray for him. But in any event, when you start out, you're going to train. 
after you've run, let's say, five miles every day or taking a day off, and then that Saturday you got to run eight miles, do you wake up going, I'm so ready to go run eight miles? Oh, man, this is going to be tough, right? After you've run it, how do you feel? Wow, I did it. I did it. Over time, what happens? You lose weight. You build strength. Your body mass changes. You're eating better. You're sleeping better. But you know what? There still comes days you go, I'm going to go swim today. I'm not going to ride my bike 50 miles today. Now, once you get in it right, now, after you've done something like this for a period of time, what happens? You have endurance. And you can go back and look at when you started. I could barely run around the track one time without being out of breath and my blood rate and my, uh, my heart rate being through the roof. And I mean, <laughs> I went down some properties in there looking at Georgia. I walked down to this river and back up and I was out of breath. That's how out of shape I am. I went, well, if I did it every day, 10 times a day, what would happen? I'd be out of breath. But it would be a little easier, right? Because you're building endurance. This is nothing hard to understand. What, what James is saying is you find joy in the trial knowing that as you go through this, you get this thing called endurance. Once you get endurance, you're going to learn, you're going to mature, you're going to grow. This is a brilliant package if we understand what James is teaching us. Um, if you can find, I'm going to paraphrase it for you, and this is, it's, I mean paraphrase in big letters. You can find joy in a trial if you know that as you go through it, you will learn endurance. And endurance can, I use that word intentionally, not will, but can result in maturity. Because it doesn't guarantee I'm going to be mature by going through trials. I may not be a good student I may have to relearn this thing again and again and again because I haven't learned that endurance. James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. But if you, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But if he asks in faith, but he, he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So if we connect verses 5 and 6 with this aforementioned joyful endurance, this makes so much sense. So we're going to have a trial. We need to know something about it. As we go through it, we'll, we'll gain endurance. Endurance can have the effect of making us mature. Well, I don't know how to do that. I mean, explain that to me. Okay, I'll tell you how you do it. You get wisdom. And what he's going to say in this next passage is you have to find wisdom. The problem with trials, and maybe, I don't mean this, I don't want to ever sound condescending, but I also don't want to be afraid of calling you out. How many of us, when we have a problem, we pray for God to deal with it, let me learn whatever I need to, translation, so the problem will go away. I mean, I do that a lot. And that's, that's, hedging faith against what the text doesn't say. When the trials come, and they will come, you need to know something. You need to know that it may produce endurance. And if it produces endurance, you're going to be mature. And in that whole package, you're going to have joy once you get on the other side of things and learn what perhaps you may not have otherwise learned. Chapter 1, 5, and 6, he tacks on, well, if you've got to find joy, let me tell you how to find wisdom. Here's a novel idea. Ask God. Ask God. Ask Him in faith. Believe Him at His Word. This is not a modern problem. Man has been looking for wisdom and answers as long as he has been on the planet. We were in some group setting recently. They run together. But people were talking about Babel and the Tower of Babel and what actually happened there. And some of the critical race theory people go back to that as a big issue uh, in the table of nations and so forth. The core of the Tower of Babel was they came together as one man to make a name for themselves. They're going to be God. They're going to build a ziggurat and get up to see God. And the Hebrew is it's, it's like a comedy routine. God looks down like, oh, those ants are doing something a little different. Oh, isn't it cute? They're building a tower. They think they're so cute. And so he, Babel, which is one of the few Hebrew words that made it into English, it's like an onomatopoeia. It sounds like 
what it is. So they're babbling. They don't understand each other anymore because God interrupted their language system to get them to disperse. So this is an pro- ancient problem. They were looking for, to one another for answers, not to God for answers. Um, when you have a problem or a trial comes into your life and interrupts your otherwise preferable routine, who's the first person you reach out to? What's the first thing you do? And if you pray, I mean this with all sincerity, good for you, congratulations, that's the right path. How many of us think of a friend we want to call? How many of us tell our spouse or complain or fill in the blank? This tells me something about my faith, and I would push you a little bit to say, what does it tell you about your faith when a trial comes? What's the first reaction? Who's the first person you turn to? A novel idea, ask of God and ask in faith. Now, that does not mean that when we do this, it's going to be fixed. But it is a recalibrating formula. God's sovereign. This is providential. He loves me. I'm a sinner that deserves all kinds of things. Uh, God, I need help. You might get an answer. You may not. I think the argument James is building here is there are going to be trials. These were people that were dispersed because of what they believed. They were chased away. They're going to have trials. Don't be happy about your trials. Choose joy when you go through it because as you endure it, you're going to learn something and that endurance will help you grow and mature in the faith. And as you do this, you're going to need wisdom. Where you get it? Ask God. Ask God. One of my closest friends, um, Robert, is famous for, uh, we've been friends for almost 40 years now, uh, over 40 years now. And he's famous for in the middle of a phone conversation or if we're out with Liz and him and Cindy and I and I'm talking about something and he'll just stop and he'll say, Lord, we come to you right now. And it's not trumped up. It's not fake. It's not religious. It's not pious. He's learned something. I don't even know if he learned it from this or not. He just learned somewhere long ago in his Christian life. The first person I turn to is to ask God for help. And I could tell you stories about things that trials that Robert has been through that will curl your hair in his life of parenting and business and so forth and so on. But just the other day we were talking about something and it wasn't like a problem. I was going somewhere to do something. And on the phone he goes, Father, right now I want to ask that you help Michael. Da, 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 da. And I feel convicted that I don't do that more. But I'm so encouraged that he does it. I'm so encouraged he, he throws the yellow towel and says, wait a minute, we could talk about this forever. I may or may not have any help for you, but you know what? We need to ask God. Men and women, that's a simple, easy discipline. Does that mean he's going to answer you audibly? I don't think so. He might answer you in the word, but what it is doing, it's recalibrating. He's God and I'm not. I'm a fallen creature in a fallen world, and I'm going to have trials not why or fix it, God, but how. You've heard me say many times through all the stuff I've been through with my own health, I've never asked God why, but I do ask Him how. I've never asked Him why I have to go through this or why blah, blah, whine, whine, cry, cry. I do ask Him how. I want to be faithful as I go through these things. You do too, don't you? In fact, fact, the matter, the how answer probably wouldn't help us. I mean, the why answer probably wouldn't help us anyway. (laughs) (laughs) This is why? Well, I don't like that answer, God. That's why I'm not going to tell you. Because I'm God and you're not. And it's called faith. So you want to find joy? You consider these trials that you know something, you endure it, you're going to learn hopefully through it. That's a joyful experience. I don't know how to go through that. Good question. Let's talk about finding wisdom. Ask God. It's a good place to start. You see, the problem is I want God to fix, God wants me to mature. That may be your problem too. I want God to fix. I want retribution. I want justice. I want it made right. God wants us to mature. Well, the passage continues, and I would just say, when you come to chapter 2 with this faith and works, keep this idea in mind. He's setting up 
sort of this proverbial list of things about joy and trials, about finding wisdom. And then he's going to venture into this faith thing that I'm not going to expound on because literally it would take me about a dozen sermons to work through chapter two. Maybe someday I'll do that. But what he's saying is essentially this, the faith and works tension will always be with us. The problem with faith and works is do good works prove salvation? That's the real rub. Because Paul has spilt incredible ink saying you're justified by faith alone. You're declared righteous in what Christ has done for us in Christ, not what I do, what he's done. James sets us on our heels going, you mean I have to show good works? And if I don't, my my faith is dead? And that opens up the straw epistle for Luther. But what he's arguing, I would say, is you're going to have things in life you're not going to be able to figure out. The proper maturing Christian growing response is, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to go through it, and I'm going to learn, and I'm going to endure, and it's going to be hard. But I might learn some things I didn't know before, and that helps me grow up. I don't know what to do. That's a good question. Ask for wisdom. Ask God to help you. Ask for help in your faith. That's a good, easy, practical thing. Now, when it comes to faith and works, well, how do I really know here? There has to be some kind of fundamental change. That's the bottom line. There's got to be some kind of change. The hard part is how we measure it. When you came to Christ, did did any of you feel guilt and shame like I did? Nobody here felt guilt and shame when they came to Christ. One person did. Did you feel freedom and forgiveness and excitement and happy and jumped up and down and all that good stuff? One person did. Boy, I'm in trouble. Actually, I'm fine. You're in trouble. Um, A lot of it has to do with personality and how we face things, but um, finding wisdom and tying this to faith and works is so important because that faith being dead or alive, there ought to be some change. When, When I came to Christ, I had the overwhelming sense was I understood I was forgiven of all my sins. Even as a teenager, I was a licentious punk. And I had a lot of things that I was, I mean, even today, if I think about them for more than about 10 seconds, I can get really guilty and feel terrible about what I did before I knew Christ. Maybe you're that way too. But then I I run real quickly to go, but I'm forgiven. I can't believe he can forgive all my sins. He can forgive all your sins. As a result of that, there ought to be some kind of change of heart and mind and affection. Uh, I've said it before, uh, the best analysis of good works is your life and mine should be a thank you back to Christ. Not to curry favor, not to prove our salvation, not even to be good works, but to obey him because we love him. And what he's done for us, we could never, quote, repay, but we can show gratitude and live a life of faithful obedience and that is what he wants. Um, in, this, in this whole passage, we're going to then go to chapter 1, verse 13, come back for a moment, and talk about temptation because it's sewn into this whole thing. Not unlike trials, we can learn joy. Not unlike knowledge, we can learn wisdom. And in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is pertinent to our day because we don't talk a lot about temptation, but we talk a lot about identity. We talk a lot about our passion. We talk a lot about how we're wired. We talk about you know, this is what I mean my wants to do. And that language has very subtly but tectonically changed many Christians' worldview. That God is going to bless my passion, my drive, my interest, my goals. And I think He will. I'm not saying He doesn't do those things, but I think we got it out of alignment. We put our affections above His. So this passage is so interesting about facing temptation. Recognize it never comes from God. Admit that we're tempted by our own lust. James doesn't mince words. It comes from our heart. That's where the deceit originates. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. We'll see that in 1 John. Um, Or as I like to truncate it, money, sex, and power. There are things that are going to tempt us. 
pay close attention to how we fail when tempted. That's what he's saying in this passage. Pay attention to what happens to you. I've used this phrase, study your sin, and that's a loaded phrase. I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't mean to be a better sinner. Bone up on your sinning and make a better grade at it. No. Uh, But what leads you to that threshold to choose to sin? I would argue most of our sins are willful choices, not omission. We talk about the Catholics are, are very precise about sins of omission. That's a valid discussion to have, but my sins are volitional. I choose to do it. And when I choose to do it, I got to own that that came from me, not somebody else. I mean, blame started, you know, with the first people on the planet, and it has never stopped. We've talked about halt before, those who've been in recovery from drugs or alcohol or substances. Talk about H A L T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You don't go out the door if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, because you might use, you'll fall into that trap of, I'll go to the bar, I'll just have one drink, or I'll just get one line of Coke, or just a little heroin. I want, you know, once you open yourself up, if you don't have some, you know, and it's not perfect, but it's a, just a, an acronym to think about. And when it comes to temptation, how do I face them? Because they're real. If you look at the verses, and these are worth your study and prayer over, uh, you get carried away, you're enticed by your own lust, lust is conceived and gives birth to sin. What a wonderful, horrible metaphor. It's conceived and the birth is sin. It's bad. Sin's accomplished, it brings death, and the warning, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Um, This would be a good, quote, test of faith. If you're a Christian and you read that passage and that doesn't kind of give you a little bit of a knot or a pause or, oh my word, then maybe you don't understand the gospel. Even the most calloused Christian, when confronted with the Word of God, can be convicted. That's the power of the Word. That's why we want to be in it every day. That's why we want to talk about it with others. The description compares the inner cravings being drawn out. I won't go too far into this, but the words are used for baiting fish or baiting an animal to trap it. That's the language he uses. Ronald Blue, not the financial Ronald Blue, but the Bible teacher Ron Blue writes, so a person both builds and baits his own trap. That lust comes from within, that temptation comes from within, I choose to act on it. When I act on it, it gives birth it becomes sin, it's accomplished, and the result is death, separation. So much to think about, and we're only in chapter 1. I want to jump to verses 19 and 22 and look at this threefold proverbial instruction. You know this, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be, one, quick to hear, two, slow to speak, three, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness with in humility receive the word implanted. So there's a little wordplay going on here, going, don't be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to speak, but don't, don't do those things, but receive something. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. And James is going to pick up on that doers of the word in a few verses in verse 25 when he says, be an effectual doer and will be blessed by what he does. Um, why is this so hard to obey? I want my own way. I want to do it my way. These three admonitions, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, always make me stop. Because I'm none of those. I am none of those. If you're a quiet person and we call you a good listener, be glad right now. If you speak for a living or you have the gift of gab or the curse of gab like some of us do, you read these verses in peril. I, I don't listen. I can be very quick and very angry in my response. And I read quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Pretty much opposite of the way I operate. You? Again, if you're a quiet person, you got that one in the bag. 
when we were in Russia many years ago, I think it was about the mid-1990s, a very small group of us went over there and we were training pastors. And we went to this uh, town in Novosibirsk, I've been to Siberia. And uh, it's actually beautiful in the fall. And we're in Siberia and 350 Russian pastors in a room that's like this but steep. And uh, if you've been to Russia or CIS, if you want to call it the Commonwealth of Independent States, um, they're, they're careful and closed people, many of them. It's hard for them to be expressive. They're not like Westerners or you know, people that are affectionate and touchy. So it takes a little bit of time to, to where they trust you. So I'm teaching this, this group of pastors for this week. And our guide who had been uh, more in Russia in, say, for 10 years, he's a, he's a U.S. citizen, but he spent most of his life in Russia um, as a, in a ministry. And when we first met, there were only four or five of us, and we're doing this kind of teaching circuit and helping pastors. He said, I'm going to give you a, a little idiom, axiom I want you to remember, and it's this, don't think, obey. And he expanded on that for quite a while. There are going to be things that are going to happen, and I'm going to say something, and we're going to do something differently, and I just want you to have in the back of your mind, don't think, obey. So we're going through a part of Moscow early in our trip, and there's a lot of traffic like these big cities are, and we were being followed, and there was a rep- representative with us and so forth and so on. And I don't know what happened, but I, and I just, you know, I'm jet lagged. I don't know what I'm doing. I walk up to him and say, you know, I thought this, 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 this. And he goes, don't think, obey. And I, okay. And I went and sat down. And later he told me we were in a very dangerous situation. And he goes, I don't have time to explain to you what I'm doing or why. You just need to listen to me and obey. And I still remember that little admonition from the 1990s. And I read this passage and I go, Michael, don't think, just obey. Don't justify always flapping your jaw. Don't think that you being right and angry is going to help anybody. Don't think. Obey. Is that too hard? Is that, is that, is that like take faith out of the equation? No. But if you're a person who's driven like me and opinionated like me and ornery like me, um, sometimes I need that dope slap. Don't think. Obey. Do I always do it? No. But sometimes I do. Some high-level observations about this book. Verse 26, bridle his tongue. Verse 27, a pure and undefiled religion, visiting orphans and widows. Um, One thing we don't have time to look into, the sacrificial language that James uses is, is reminiscent of the Old Testament he's talking about, and the hearers would hear a lot of sacrificial and purification language we're not hearing because we're too far removed and we don't have time to unpack it all. But what he's saying here is religion, a sacrifice, an offering is to do this orphans and widows things. Another side, side bar. I have, I have no bone to pick with orphans and widows ministries. I have no bone to pick with um, the pejorative uh, corrupt police department that has the orphans and widows fund. Uh, but that's not a ministry to orphans and to widows. This is an, an idiom that means from New York to L.A. It's an idiom mean, that means A to Z. And what James is telling his audience is the most vulnerable young people, orphans, the most vulnerable old people, widows, pure and undefiled sacrifice and service to God is caring for the spectrum of those who are the most vulnerable in life. So it's a really a beautiful picture. I want you to be aware of pure and undefiled religion is when you look at all the needs where people are being abused or hurt. Chapter 2, verse 1 is personal favoritism. You know, why does the Bible have to be so meddlesome? If that weren't bad enough, in verse 9, he says, if you show the sin of partiality, you've committed sin. Okay, none of you have ever showed the sin of partiality. I have done it on a regular basis. And it's sin. Don't think, Michael, obey. Is this a cheery sermon for you? I'm I'm working on it. Another cheery Michael sermon. The idea of conversion following this is is that there's got to be some change. I can't measure it. And it's dangerous to try to measure somebody else's change. That's where we get in trouble. But would you not agree to understand that Jesus lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone to forgive you of your sins, to grant you eternal life, to be with Him forever, that His Holy Spirit indwells you the moment you trust in Him. There ought to be some kind of change. 
We get in trouble measuring it, but I would push back to say the idea of conversion, the idea of born again, the idea of repentance, which can follow later, let's say for just discussion's sake, there's got to be some change. This is the way I used to live, and I don't live that way anymore. I live differently. Well, let's move on. Um, in chapter 4, there are 10 imperatives, and I love this list. It's a staccato when you read it in English or in Greek. Submit, therefore, to God. Submit, the first one. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What an encouraging comment. Draw near to him. That's why I want you in the Word every day. That's why I want you reading the prayer book in the morning if you have time. That's why I want you to make it a priority. Draw near to him. It's always worth your time. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He did not take Dale Carnegie, I will tell you that. <laughs> be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Is James throwing a, a wet blanket and raining on your party? No. He's saying when you live in this tension of change and sin and you know these things you're supposed to obey, you're not doing them, you need to mourn and weep. So I can casually say I still have the sin of partiality. I can casually say I'm quick to speak and quick to anger. Uh, I shouldn't be casual about that. I think, God, I, I need your, your help because I am a sinner and I am stubborn. And I want my way. And you're not doing what needs to be done right now. So I need to help out a little bit. Dangerous stuff. So that's where cleanse. And again, look at the sacrificial language in these verses. Cleanse, purify. They would understand these, so forth. Well, who among us would not benefit from memorizing those four verses? Maybe that's what you need to do this week. That's what I'm working on. Chapter 4, verse 13, come now who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That'd be a good Bitcoin ad. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes away. Instead, say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, I love this vapor verse, and that fits my profile of a cheery person, right? Your life's a vapor. It's fog on a mirror. It's going to, you know, as soon as the humidity changes, you're gone. You're toast. Um, this week, Cindy and I had two women friends we've known for years both pass away. One's a woman we've known at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove for going on 20 years. Michelle, uh, a wonderful, wonderful woman, and she was in the hospital waiting on a procedure and dies in the hospital. Another one was the wife of a music director we knew in our very first church we served in the, in the mid-80s. And uh, she was visiting one of her children and died yesterday. And it's like, I know I'm getting old, and all you who are under 40 think, this old guy, you know, all he talks about is death and dying. And he's, a, you know, he's not a very happy guy. I love this verse. Because he doesn't just say, have a pessimistic outlook on life. He says, instead, instead of being stuck there, where Michael Isaac can be stuck, if the Lord, say, if the Lord wills. Um, in the top of my Bible on this page, I have my initials MJE. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. I think that's a helpful reminder. I don't think it's sad or maudlin. See, the problem is, for most Christians, we live our lives without God until we need God. And we're missing out on so much. When the human resources can't help us anymore, when it's not about money or job or health or whatever, and the trial is too heavy and too oppressive, and we're wondering how do we get through this, and we've not really sought the wisdom of God, and now all of a sudden we're having prayer chains out and we're complaining and talking to all our friends about how unfair life is and how bad things are and all things that happen to me. And we all sort of sound like we're two years old complaining. And then we get busy with God. Maybe you don't. And if you don't, I'm, I'm encouraged for you. I'm glad for you. That's where I can live. I'm just being transparent. I'm one of you. 
I get busy when I need God. And we miss a lot. The message is because we don't know how long we're going to live. Instead of all the planning, and, and I love reading these books. I, there was a time when I read leadership books. I had 100 plus on a shelf, and I thought, I don't know if I'm any better of a leader, but a lot of opinions are up there. And um, a lot of ideas, and they come and go, and some of them aren't around anymore. But I stepped back and I realized, um, how much better to say, God, I want to do this and I want to do that, but, you know, it's up to you. One of my close, close friends, Dave Gibson, this is my close friend story day. Um, we've been friends, 84, 83 we met. And um, he uses the phrase, if God wills, a lot. I know him well enough to know how sincere he is, however. It's not just a cliche, you know, God willing, God willing. And he, he will often craft phrases in such a way that make you pause when you hear them. But Dave often prefaces his sentence or finishes them, if God wills. Um, when uh, we're growing up in the Christian life, let's say you came to Christ as a student and you want to, God, I want to finish high school. God, I want to go to a good college. God, I would like to get a scholarship maybe to play a sport or study my subject or whatever it is. God, I want to meet a really good Christian guy or girl. God, I'd like to get married. God, if, if it's your will, I'd like to get married, have a good job, and maybe have some kids. Uh, God, I'd love to, you know, succeed in my business and grow and have more money and be able to do this and that and travel and maybe give more money away. And God, I'd love to have some grandchildren when you work on my kids. And God, you know, and we live this life that before you know it, that vapor is gone and we've not stopped to say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. A great reminder, right? So Dave retires. This is not an exaggeration. And it's, it's probably the people with whom I traffic with. But I probably have three to five times a week a conversation with a man my age-ish who doesn't know what they're going to do next. It's systemic. And um, <laughs> I find myself going, yeah, I want the answer to that too. Um, I tease a couple of friends of mine about, you know, what do I do now? We did all these things, quote, right. What do we do now? And you can pick up hobbies. You can travel. You can do those things. And that's fine. I was with a friend two weeks ago. He and his wife are next May. They're both done, 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 done. They're buying one of those big trailers on the back of their truck, and they're going to go not just camping, but it's, it's, it was a geocaching or something where you go off grid. God bless them. God bless them. Do I want to do that? No. No. And I'll like good money. They'll do about five times and they won't do any more. That's what I, my bet is. Um, <laughs> so you travel and you have grandchildren. You go see grandchildren. And those are both fun things. Cindy and I love to travel and we love our grandchildren. But you know what? Um, Travel's kind of complicated right now. And there's all other kinds of things. And who knows, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Nobody knows, but God knows, and my life's a vapor. So when Dave retired, we were in Dallas, and he finished East West Ministries. And uh, we were out to dinner with this other couple, and Cindy and I, and uh, Dave's was, his wife was there too, I think. And I said, Dave, what are you going to do now? And he, he, he loves to write on, he's got pads. He's got more pads than the office supply store. He's got pads and the portfolios and you know, everything. And he's got this great printing and he, he writes incessantly. He just, he calls it his paper brain. And that's how he thinks and processes. And I just get overwhelmed seeing the clamor, but that's how he does it. And he pulled out his thing and he started reading his goals. And my friend Robert and Liz and Cindy and I sat there with our mouth open he says, well, the first thing I'm going to do is disciple all my grandchildren. And this grandson wants to go, is it Joshua Tree? Is that some like crazy forest where people die when they go backpacking? My, he wants to go there, so we're going to do a 10-day trip there. And this daughter wants to go to Seattle, and, this, and he goes, and I'm working on them, and we're reading this together, and we're memorizing these verses together. And he just went down the line with each of his grandchildren. And then he said, okay, I'm going to build this, this. He told the story, I think, about the kayak kit he built. He built this wooden kayak, you know, God bless him. I would, you know, you can pay me to do that. I'd pay somebody else to do it, but you couldn't pay me to do it. And he had all these things he was going to do specific. I'm going to, he calls his wife, Mrs. Gibson, which is so endearing. Then okay, he calls her Mrs. Gibson. I'm, I'm remodeling Mrs. Gibson's bathroom. 
And he tore it all out, did it all himself, remodeled it. He's, he's, a, he's a checklist guy. He loves to write things down. And I looked at him, and not that I wanted to do what he was doing. I was so encouraged by a guy that knew what to do. And he almost always said, if God wills, if God wills, if God wills, if God wills. He was here. He stayed with me, and um, we were talking one night late. And we were talking about if God's wills. And I said, Dave, how do you keep your joy in all this? I mean, doesn't it feel like drudgery and, you know, your identity's kind of changed and mucked up? And he goes, Michael, I made a decision. I get to preach once in a while. I get to write. He's writing a book right now. Uh, I get to do some church consulting. I get to hang out with my grandkids. I get to do projects. I'm a blessed man. How many of you feel that way? You need to. That's what James is saying. Your life's a vapor. We don't know. MJE, you do not know what tomorrow's like, but you know what? You know what today's like. And what are you going to do today? If God wills, tomorrow I want to do this. What does this do? What does thinking this way do? What it does for me is it makes God sovereign and me a submissive child. Don't think, obey. Now, I don't mean not be unthinking, right? You're not, you're not going there. Don't, don't overanalyze it. Don't overwork it. Obey. Ask for wisdom. Ask for help. Do you really think the Christian life has to be this complicated? If it is, why did he save the likes of you and me? Why didn't he save all the men's of people? Because he loves you. James is a very practical cookies on the lower shelf book. And all these things that you and I are planning, if God wills, if God wills, what a great, not epitaph, but what a great underscore. If God wills, we're going to buy a cabin. If God wills, we're going to buy a lake house. If God wills, we're going to go to Israel. If God wills, we're going to take our grandchildren to Europe one day. If God wills, fill in the blank. That simple calibration can be a cliche. But if you stop for just a moment and think, this is what I got. Another man in this room I won't name, he's got lots and lots and lots of grandkids. And I asked him the other day, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'll be on the soccer field all day Saturday watching grandkids. For some of you, that may sound like, you know, death. (laughs) Others, that may be exciting. That doesn't matter. What matters is, do you understand what your purpose is? If you don't understand what your purpose is in each chapter of your decades, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60s, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Because it will creep up on you. That's why today is good. That's why knowing your life is a vapor is great information. Look at God, what am I going to do with what I got? Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.